Hello and welcome to Health Yeah! Brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, promoting health and preventing disease. You can find more information about NACDD at chronicdisease.org. As always, I'm Joseph Rhodes, your friendly podcast producer. Well, hello there, and welcome to Health Yeah! Today on the podcast, we have Anne Potempa. She's a public health communications specialist all the way from the great state of Alaska. And she has a wonderful story to tell, not only how she found her career, but also the way that she does her job and the way she sort of fits in the public health space and her relation to it. It's very fascinating. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, I'm Paige Rowe with the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, and I'm so pleased to have with me today Anne Potempa from the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services in the section of Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. Anne is a public health communication specialist, and she's going to uh, discuss with us today some of the challenges and opportunities that she's seen in health communications in the frontier state. Thank you, Anne, for joining us today. Thank you, Paige. I appreciate it. I think uh, a lot of our members uh, probably spend a lot of time thinking about communications in general, how they can better reach their audiences, how they can influence stakeholders, legislators, and funders to support their work, how they can communicate to the general public about the value of public health in general. We hear that a lot from our members as well, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we were so pleased that you could join us for this podcast today, because from what we've learned about Alaska, there are so many valuable lessons we think that your state has to share our members might be able to apply in their own work today. So I wanted to start by asking you to share a little bit about your background with us. Sure. Um, Everyone has their own route into their current jobs. Mine actually started outside public health. My first degree uh, was from my home state, which is Wisconsin. I earned a journalism degree and a sociology degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it was at that point that I really wanted to be a news reporter. So I had spent 10 years as a newspaper reporter Uh, at papers in Wisconsin, then Utah, and then finally Alaska, where I live now. Uh, From 2000 to 2007, I was the healthcare reporter for the Anchorage Daily News, which is based in Anchorage, Alaska, but actually serves as the state's newspaper. And in 2003, I was fortunate enough to get a a night journalism fellowship at the CDC. So for four months, I took a sabbatical from the newspaper, moved to Atlanta, and worked inside the foodborne uh, disease division uh, for for the summer of 2003 to sort of better understand public health as a journalist. So while I was there, I wasn't working as a journalist, but I was learning public health inside the CDC. They sent us on outbreak investigations and it was just a really eye-opening experience for me and actually when I finished it I sort of felt like I needed to know more about public health 
So it was at that point in 2005, I uh, started to earn my Master in Public Health degree at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and I was fortunate that it was offered distance so that I could work as a reporter at the same time as earning my degree. I focused that degree on health communication and social marketing and earned that in 2009. Now, I've since switched careers and have left newspapers, and I've been with the state health department for 12 years, and now my main focus area here is working with individual public health programs, primarily in chronic disease prevention, on both health communication and social marketing. That's quite a a career trajectory, and I do think it's actually not that unusual um, in the field of health communications in general. I know uh, I myself have met several journalists who have found themselves really intrigued by public health and really wanted to contribute uh, their specific communication skills to that role. And it's really wonderful to hear that the, the Knight Journalism Fellowship puts you on that pathway and that you are able to contribute so significantly with your skill set um, in the areas of, of great need. It's been really helpful to come with a journalism background because the whole the whole point of writing for a newspaper is to write simply and clearly. So that skill set has come over really nicely into the public health department, where I think it's our job to help explain to Alaskans how to, how to pick the healthiest behaviors in, in words that make sense to them. And so that has really translated well when I've come over into the health department. Absolutely. And I think there's also a little bit of a nice synchronicity between a journalist interest in asking questions and public health and science in general's interest in answering questions uh, and sometimes asking new ones as well. So along those lines, I wonder if you could explain for me a little bit of the difference between a health communications specialist role and what public affairs or sharing public information does. Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, there's different ways health organizations and departments like mine incorporate communications. And actually, when I first started with this department 12 years ago, um, I actually started in the public information uh, team. And that team really um, has the function of uh, serving as like a liaison with the media. So as press want to find out what our programs are doing or they need information about a certain service, they will call in and then it's the public information officer's job to sort of coordinate that conversation and get them to the right specialist to have that conversation. A lot of what's done is communicating after the fact, making sure what the department has done is shared um, with the press, which in, which is in then turn shared with the public. Uh, press, uh, the public information officers also write press releases. They write content for websites, brochures, um, and, and that type of thing. And then similarly, we have publication specialists, sort of designers who, who work with the, the public information officers to make sure everything is coordinated and, and the product is made. Now I work as a health communication specialist. Uh, at the federal level, the CDC first created the job class for a, publica- for a health communication specialist in the late 1990s, and that's really just 20 years ago. So this field is really developing and becoming more available across the country. Um, 
when they did that, they really defined health communications as I do it today. And it's not the same thing as public affairs or sharing public information. Both are valuable, but they're just different functions. Absolutely. And I wondered, you know, if you could explain a little bit about um, how your department in particular and your work is set up and how you, you've talked a little bit about kind of the intersection between working with public affairs or, or public information, but how does your division and your department really work? So I work for um, the Division of Public Health, which is one of the divisions within the department. And underneath that division are various sections. And my section, as you mentioned earlier, is the section of chronic disease prevention and health promotion. And we have various programs within that section, obesity prevention, tobacco prevention, cancer and diabetes prevention, heart disease and stroke, and injury prevention so each of those programs has a program manager. They often have epidemiologists, other public health specialists. Our obesity prevention program has registered dietitians. So we have all those different uh, levels of expertise within our section. And what we've done, which is, is pretty unique, is they have hired me as a health communications specialist to be at the table with these other professionals, these epidemiologists, dietitians, and other specialists. I'm integrated into these sections, public health programs. So the health communication that I do now really involves working with these other professionals to craft and share messages to motivate individuals and communities to make these positive health changes. Uh, the type of communications that I do applies behavior change theories like stages of change theory, theory of planned behavior. It borrows practices from social marketing. Uh, for example, I'm always working with our, my colleagues to study your audiences, to better understand their knowledge about health issues, their attitudes and their behaviors, so that the messages we make can speak to them and motivate changes. And finally, it borrows a little bit from, health com from mass communication as well, so that we are using the right types of channels to reach our audience and where they are. And I think there's also some interesting logistical challenges about your department, right? So you have another um, communicator on your team, but they don't live uh, in the same city as you. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? That's correct. I live and work in Anchorage, Alaska. I've been here for almost 20 years. Anchorage is the largest city that we have here. Uh, but it's actually not our seat of government. Our seat of government is Juneau. Uh, Juneau is a much smaller community of about 30,000 people, and it's located on, in southeast Alaska. And so I, I work remotely with um, our publication specialist. She's based in Juneau. I'm based here. And so when I'm working on sort of the language and the words that we might use on a website or a brochure, um, I'm working sort of through the computer and over the phone with her in Juno as she's designing these out. And we, we try, we have various technologies to help with those conversations. We use sort of WebEx or GoToMeeting, um, video teleconferencing so we can sort of share screens and look at, look at what we're working on together. But that's actually a common, a common thing for state workers in Alaska because we have employees based in many different communities across the state, often communities that can't reach each other by road. You can only reach them by boat or plane. And I think uh, that might be similar to, although the geography is vastly different, it might be similar to other more rural states 
um, who are trying to coordinate across uh, large, vast uh, spaces, either rural or mountainous, where they may not necessarily um, be able to travel via road or um, be able to get in touch with each other when they're going out into the field. So maybe there are some some particular things that that individuals who uh, work in communities that are more remote um, in, in, outside of Alaska may find some of the lessons here of particular interest. And also, you know, when we talk about language, one of the things that I think is is important to acknowledge about Alaska is that I understand that the um, that about five percent of Alaskans speak one of twenty two indigenous languages, which are also known as native languages. So uh, while many states deal with uh, multilingual populations or or populations that maybe speak more of one language than another, and maybe that's not always English, uh, there is a, a very uh, important component of behavior change and speaking in the language and within the cultural expectations of of that as well. I wondered uh, very briefly if you, wanted to share with us a little bit uh, about how that might impact your work. Yeah, that's exactly true. Uh, we do have a significant Alaska Native population here in Alaska, both in Anchorage as well as in very remote and rural communities across the state. One of the, the fortunate things for our department is that we are um, a consistent partner with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium here in that's based in Anchorage, but serves uh, Alaska Native families across the state, and that's really helped us in a number of ways. Uh, some examples of of how we ensure our messages are reaching to and speaking to our Alaska Native families. Our, our tobacco prevention campaign, for example, has recorded some of its messages using Alaska Native languages. So they will record, for example, a radio public service announcement in English. I work for our obesity prevention campaign called the Play Everyday Campaign. That's actually focused on Alaska parents of young children to help Alaska kids grow up in a healthy weight. Obesity is a big problem across the entire country. It's an issue here. One out of three Alaska children are growing up uh, overweight or obese. And we have a, a partnership with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, which has really helped us go out to these uh, rural communities that often have high percentages of Alaska Native families and focus group there so that we're we're listening to Alaska Native families to find out what their knowledge about, for example, sugary drink consumption is, what their behaviors are, and how we can actually incorporate some of the um, regional, um, sometimes cultural issues that we're hearing from into our messages to make sure that they're relevant to our audiences. That's excellent. And I, I think when you add up uh, all of the different I don't want to call them necessarily challenges, but when you add up all of the different uh, factors about working in Alaska, from the geographic, the, the, the dispersed geographic area, I think I, I read a statistic, and you can correct me on this, but the state of Alaska is one of the largest uh, states uh, in the country. If you actually put it over, you know, the state of Alaska, you put it over a map of the United States, it would, it would take up a, a large proportion of the country as well. In addition to that, there's uh, in, inhospitable environments, uh, difficult weather challenges, uh, sometimes places only accessible by plane, sometimes places only accessible certain times of the year, uh, great diversity in terms of uh, native uh, languages and native populations, as well as within uh, other communities themselves. Um, 
and um, also perhaps a sense of a larger remoteness from, from the rest of the United States, still calling itself the frontier state, for example. So all that together presents an, a number of interesting challenges and opportunities and perhaps case studies that other states that have maybe one of these uh, factors or a couple of them could look to and say, oh, that's how, how they've done it over there. That might be of interest to us. So I wanted to get to a little bit of brass tacks then about um, your uh, tobacco campaign and your and your play everyday campaign and in particular you could tell us a little bit about these programs I know in particular that your childhood obesity prevention program has gotten a lot of recognition nationally so maybe let's start there with um, play everyday and childhood obesity could you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in these areas and how that might have been uh, impacted by the, the the uniqueness of working in Alaska sure so um my role here as a health communication specialist actually started uh, kind of officially in 2011 when the health commissioner at the time put out a request for pilot projects. At the time, our section's obesity prevention program weren't running a statewide communication campaign focused on obesity prevention among kids, but they definitely seen the positive potential from our tobacco prevention program. As I mentioned, obesity prevention and tobacco prevention programs are both seated in the same section. So our colleagues sit right next to each other in offices. And tobacco prevention has a, a much longer history of using mass reach health communication interventions as a strategy that's integrated into the program to um, prevent uh, youth and others from starting tobacco use as well as to help them quit tobacco use using quit lines. Alaska, for example, has a free Alaska tobacco quit line that you can call or text uh, to get support and um, prevention aids to quit tobacco. So basically, we had, we had written a pitch back in 2011 uh, to start a communication campaign to help Alaska children grow up at a healthy weight. And seven years later, I'm proud to say this campaign called Play Every Day is still running, and I am still overseeing it. Um, it has received some state and national recognition in 2015. It received a gold medal from the National Public Health Information Coalition for, for a campaign focused on reducing sugary drink consumption. Uh, back in September, you had sort of asked how this came to be. Back in September, I, I went to Atlanta to present at its National Communications Conference on how we created a communication campaign and the obesity prevention program, which lacked some of this evidence base of using social marketing to make positive changes in behavior. But we were fortunate to have our colleagues right down the hallway in tobacco prevention who have a long history and a pretty solid evidence base of using mass communication health interventions to make changes. So we we read through the CDC best practices guide for tobacco prevention and we really just found ways to adopt all of those strategies for obesity prevention. Um, just to go over a couple of them, the CDC really stresses that these campaigns should be sustained. They should keep going to uh, encourage behavior change over time. They should be statewide. They should have culturally appropriate, which I just talked about, high-impact messages that reach a high percentage of your audience over time. And doing that by using some of these mediums like TV uh, that can really get your messages to a high percentage of your target audience um, 
with some great frequency. So we did that and we were really able to see some positive results uh, over the last seven years in our Play Every Day campaign in terms of knowledge and behavior change. And one of the things that I want to highlight about that is that sometimes people tend to have differing views about the use of television and a statistic um, that I've heard was that use of cable TV and the, and the internet in, in Alaska is higher in some of these more remote areas than one might expect. Is that true? So we, we have some um, struggles and strengths in that area. So um, if there's other health communicators listening in other states, they might have a number of marketing areas in their highly populated communities that they can sort of measure TV use. Alaska really only has two, unfortunately, which is Anchorage and our surrounding community, which is about 400,000 people out of Alaska's 740,000 total population. Uh, so Anchorage and Fairbanks, which is another one of our urban areas, even though it only has 30,000 people, we can really only measure um, people's TV viewership in those two areas. But we still have to reach all across the state, which is a, a very expansive state. As you mentioned, it's the largest state in the country with one of the smallest populations. And these folks are distributed all across the state in places that you cannot reach by road. And you, there are no roads, for example, connecting Anchorage and the northernmost community in the U.S. called Ukiagvik, also known formally as Barrow. So we have to find ways to sort of bridge that expanse and reach them. And what we've used is uh, cable TV can reach some of these sort of larger, if you will, communities and villages with 3,000 to 9,000 residents. Uh, but they, they aren't really, the cable and broadcast aren't really good strategies for us to sort of penetrate these really small remote rural communities that you can often only get to by boat or small plane, like the planes that are we call bush planes with four seats, eight seats, that we have to use different strategies. And, and we've used um, the internet and we use, the, we use print. You know, some people have really gone away from print as a way to reach people. But in these small communities, schools and stores and post offices, they're really still community hubs. And we found that if we print these posters and banners about our health issues, they'll be, they'll be hung in these communities and they'll often stay up there. And we can ship them, we can print them at low cost and we can ship them in a flat envelope or a very small box, which makes that communication uh, more efficient in those types of areas. That's fascinating. And uh, what I'm hearing is a couple of different things for our listeners to, to really highlight in, in their own planning. One is that uh, the perhaps the more traditional pathways one might think of uh, in reaching audiences sometimes really do work just because they're traditional doesn't necessarily mean they're outdated, such as posters. Um, and then, uh, you know, and, and in specific uh, communities, they might be the easiest way to get to that community as well with your message. And the other I'm hearing is that while you might not have a media market, you might have cable television or you might have something you didn't anticipate because that's how the community is able to connect um, with the rest of the world. So I think those are kind of very interesting juxtapositions of not making assumptions about what's available or what might be noticed uh, in a community because 
maybe there isn't that much opportunity for, for that kind of presentation as you would think that there is. Would you say that, that how, would you, how would you comment on that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think one of the, the biggest jobs of a health communication specialist is to really study and examine the routes of communication where you are because you're going to learn about some unique strategies that are out there that you could be using. Uh, for example, I'm not sure other rural states do this, but there's a really unique thing in Alaska um, that takes individual programming off broadcast channels repackages them into a new sort of TV package and then sends those out to really remote uh, bush villages so that they can watch some of this broadcast TV programming when they don't get these network channels. So if you know that what you're producing, your, your short 30-second public service announcement might be included in one of these broadcast channels, it's an opportunity for me to put it on that programming so it's repackaged and sent out to these rural communities. That's, that's one thing we've learned over time is that's a sort of a workaround for us to make sure our messages are reaching these harder to reach people. You know, I've, I've traveled to a number of rural villages across the state, both to do focus groups for these campaigns, as well as to film. We've been fortunate to be able to film some public service announcements in Ukiagrik, our northernmost community, Bethel, which is a community on the west coast of Alaska. We've gone to southeast Alaska in Petersburg and Sitka, very small communities down there in the rainforest part of Alaska. And sometimes what you'll find is you'll have terrible cell phone uh, abilities in these communities. You can't use your phone the way you wanted to use it, but then you'll go to certain places in the community and you'll have exceptional internet access. So you really need to pay attention to that because sometimes these very physically remote communities have pretty good internet connection. And so you'll hear them say that they get their information on internet websites, on their desktop, or on their mobile or tablet device, or that they're really high users of Facebook. Facebook is might not be as popular in, in, the, in the lower 48 states as it is here. We continue to hear from parents that they use it on a daily basis. And so it's something that we really use to reach Alaska parents up here because they are high users. And Facebook really allows you to target uh, parents by community, by zip codes. So it's one way for us to really get our messages out there. I think that's, that's fascinating. And it's, it's a really great reminder that sometimes the things that we see other, you know, we see all these webinars sometimes, or we see uh, promotional materials. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that um, some of our members get cold calls from vendors who are offering the latest new thing or new way of keeping up with people or whatever it is. And it's just a reminder how important it is to actually know your audience and know whether a new tool or new approach is really appropriate for them versus an approach that may be something that's um, really relied upon uh, but it might be seen as a more traditional method of communication. So a newer method isn't always better, but also not making assumptions about the community because of its remoteness and its access to outside information uh, is also a very important lesson that I'm hearing. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well a little bit um, more detail about the way that you took tobacco cessation and applied it to childhood obesity and wondered if you'd share a little bit more information just in general about what kinds of, it's such a novel approach, 
What other kinds of applications do you see in behavior change? Are there general guidance for how someone could look at a program they currently have that's successful, say in um, the National Diabetes Prevention Program, and, and apply that to something else that they might be doing where they're struggling to hit their, hit their outcomes, like cardiovascular prevention, for example? What kinds sure. of things do you look for to see how applicable or not applicable they might be in behavior change? So really, when, I, when we sat down and we looked through these CDC best practices for tobacco prevention mass reach communication campaigns, there are so many practices there that are applicable to any kind of public health issue. I mean, really, when I sit down and look at the work that I'm doing, and I do this for not just obesity and tobacco prevention, but I have helped our diabetes program, our um, cancer prevention program, and our injury prevention program incorporate this into their work. And really, it comes down to the fundamental processes of social marketing. So you always need to start by defining your problem. So for obesity, for example, one out of three Alaska children are overweight or obese. We know they're not hitting the national recommendation of 60 minutes of physical activity every day. We know there's high consumption of sugary drinks across the state. We know regionally where those are problems. So it's really starting with your data, finding out what the problem is, and then determining what your target audience is going to be. Uh, you, you unfortunately often don't have the resources to reach everyone, and so you need to target an audience and make sure what you make for them actually speaks to them and reaches them and, and actually has the potential of motivating a change. And the way you do that is to study them, either with the key informant interview process or the focus group process, which we, we've done where you get, you know, eight to ten folks in a room in your target audience and you, you ask them about their knowledge and their attitudes and their behaviors and you listen to what they're saying. And then we sit down and we, we write out concepts and messages and then we go out and we do it again. We get another set of focus groups back on board, another set of our target audience is there, and we, sh we run messages by them. We run storyboard concepts by them so that when we get to the point of actually producing and filming, we have a pretty good sense that what we have on, on, our, on our script is makes sense to them, has a good chance of making a change, and is really making the most efficient use of our resources. And then finally, it's critical to include some sort of an evaluation component in this. Uh, we, we've learned that from Tobacco Prevention, which has been monitoring their social marketing campaigns for years. Uh, we did that with the Play Every Day campaign using six surveys between 2014 and 2017. Uh, these were telephonic surveys of Alaska parents of young children, our target audience. Uh, the first was a baseline before we, we ran any sugary drinks messages. And the following five surveys happened after every time we did some more messages. By the end of it, we'd heard from about 3,500 Alaska parents, which is a substantial number of folks across the state, and we were able to measure a statistically significant decrease in the percentage of urban Alaska parents who'd given their children one or more sugary drinks during the past week, and a statistically significant increase in the percentage of parents who said they served their kids water uh, during the day. Again, those are our two big behavior change goals that we were going after, uh, increased water, decreased sugary drink consumption, and um, we saw both of those 
Now, I'm, I'm going to stress that our design was not one of cause and effect relationship, but we did see these positive behavior changes between a period where we were running no sugary drinks messages to a period when we were consistently running them. And that's the kind of evaluation that needs to be considered when you invest and integrate these kind of campaigns into your public health programs. And, and what I hear from that and what I, what I think when I put my state health department staff member hat on is, oh, well, that's nice, you know, and you have, you're dedicated doing this. You have, you know, resources to help you. Our department may not have this. So how are we supposed to take the time to go do these focus groups or, you know, some, some of this other extra work uh, to make sure the messages are right? And what we might say in response to that is, as, as you so clearly laid out, this is the work. This can be the work of making sure that you are equipping people with information where they are, that they understand within cultural appropriate um, formats and, and messages so that they can do the change you're asking to do. So you see the impact you're looking for. Um, so that's what I hear a little bit is, health communication and, and the behavior the communication that creates behavior change needs that time investment in order to work because we can put up posters about, you know, taking the stairs um, up to your office or choosing an apple uh, for lunch instead of a bag of chips. But, you know, it's much more powerful when people feel you're actually speaking to them rather than at them. And so I, I wondered if you had anything else to, to add to that or... Yeah, I do agree with you on that. I want to say a couple things to that. So um, I do believe this is critically important work to consider integrating into your public health programs. Like I said, I've, been, I've learned that this is a somewhat new field um, across the country. It's being uh, slowly incorporated into programs. I, I will say that there are master in public health and doctor in public health programs across this country that now have tracks for health communication and social marketing as public health specialties, just as biostatistics or epidemiology or maternal child health are specialties. So there are people out there like me who are specializing in this. This is a public health specialty, and there is room for this kind of job within public health programs, and I feel like everyone stands to gain from adding um, folks like that into their team um, to sort of communicate what's being done, but more than that, to actually do the work, as you said, to study the audience, to add this as a strategy to positively change behaviors. Secondly, I will say there's only one of me in our section, um, but I, am, I work with all of our programs to help them do whatever they can to incorporate that into this. So they are doing focus groups now, and they are thinking about survey evaluation. And so all of these sort of uh, concepts and, and processes within social marketing are becoming integrated into these programs, um, and, and, and it's, it's only, only standing to help uh, the outcomes that we're able to create out of this work. That's awesome. And for those that don't, um, that are, that would like to adopt some of this work sooner rather than later, 
what are some of the resources that you found especially helpful or um, some some tools that, that you think you'd really like to encourage people to start taking a look at to learn more about this field and this specialty and how it could benefit, how some of its theories and practices could benefit them? Sure. I mean, there are textbooks, and the CDC has uh, websites focused on using sort of health communication and social marketing processes. But then there's these other um, resources that really anybody can turn to to improve the work they're already doing. I'm going to talk about two of them, actually three of them from the Centers for Disease Control. I've really worked with our section to make them um, understand the um, availability of something called Everyday Words for Public Health Communication and Plain Language and Materials and Resources. Both of these come out from the CDC. Um, the easiest way to find Everyday Words is to just Google CDC Everyday Words. It's a PDF and it should be among your top choices. Um, in order to reach our target audiences and motivate positive changes, we really need to be speaking to them in the words they use, not in the words we use. And everyday words is just a great tool to help you come up with the most clear, concise words to reach your audience. It's organized in a great way. It'll give you a phrase that we might use in public health, and then it'll give you other options. Um, as an example, we commonly use the phrase associated with in public health, uh, but a more every, everyday way to say that is linked to or related to. Um, another example they give is carcinogen, uh, but people might understand that better if you said something that causes cancer. So sort of picking apart all of your, your words and, what, and how you're talking to people and making sure you've brought those down to the level that's really the most readable and easiest to understand. The plain language materials and resources can easily, easily be found through Google online. It also provides ways um, to reach people. Um, and then there's the Clear Communication Index, which is uh, an online sort of scoring tool that you can use while you either A, make your material or sort of B, edit your material or somebody else's material to sort of ask yourself some questions. Uh, who is your target audience? What's their health literacy level? Is your main message prominent and mentioned right away? Do you use visuals and subheads and bullets to make your material more understandable? And that index really just gives you a score and helps you understand where you might be falling short so you could re-examine it and make some changes to help reach your audience. Those are awesome, and, and we use those at NACDD as well. And I really encourage everyone to even take a product that, um, that you've, you've finished, you've used in the community, maybe it's a flyer or a poster, run it through the Clear Communication Index or a couple of them and just do a survey to see were you hitting some of those marks and are there areas where you might identify you do need improvement within your department that might be more using everyday language or that might be that you think that your materials are at a certain literacy rate a literacy level and they're actually a little higher than that or um or perhaps things aren't as 508 compliant as you think they might be so uh, it's always worthwhile to just take a look and assess where your department might be already in your communications activities and maybe start from there as well to see if there are specific competencies that you'd like to develop. Well, we're getting near to the end of our time and I, I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that our, our listeners have really learned a lot about how in Alaska you've been able to overcome and also leverage 
some of the uh, challenges and, and opportunities that exist in your state really make some very impactful um, programming related to childhood obesity and, and so many other things that, that you all have done. Is there anything that you'd like to add or any advice uh, for any of our listeners who've been listening and, and they agree and they'd really like to go ahead and get started? Um, no, I, I just really think it's important for all of us to think about all the possible roles you could have at the table to make your program comprehensive. And a health communications specialist is definitely um, one more person that can help sort of bring this all together and communicate really these behavior change goals that we're all trying to reach. Um, I'd also like to say that working within your program to sort of speak and communicate in a consistent way is important. Uh, one of the things we also try to use here is a style guide. Uh, sometimes when you hear the word style, you think about sort of color palettes and look and feel. Style for uh, a word person like me is really more about the types of words you use and the grammar rules your department will use. So we're really moving in the direction of trying to adopt a, a style guide that we, we all sort of use so our communications is consistent. Uh, for somebody like me who comes from newspapers, I'm very familiar with Associated Press or AP Style Guide. Some health organizations across the country use that. They've adopted that because really you're, you're speaking to the public and the Associated Press Guide um, is, is designed for public communications. Um, but a lot of organizations, including the NACDD, have really invested in creating their own style guide. Um, and we actually use the NACDD style guide within our uh, section communications in addition to, to relying on the AP style guide. And it's really been helpful um, to make sure everything that we put out is sort of consistent in, in the words and the kinds of ways we reach people. Well, thank you for the plug. And uh, NACDD's communications guide and style guide is available upon request. You can email us at publications at chronicdisease.org to request your copy, and we're happy to provide it to you. And it includes a, really an attempt to unify all the different uh, conversations and guidance out there about chronic diseases uh, and their prevention and control in general. So we are, as you say, speaking in a unified voice uh, across departments and uh, across organizations. So we definitely appreciate the plug there. Um, one last thing that I think that um, perhaps we can close on is really this larger idea that fundamentally um, we are here for each other. We are a community of, of chronic disease, state, tribal, and territorial staff who uh, want to help prevent and control chronic disease. And because of that, I think it's so important that people look to the examples of their peers to see how they are doing this or how they are approaching that. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to offer, um, you know, any, any opportunities to engage with, with the state of Alaska on some of the successful work that you've done? There's nothing I value more than being able to network with other health communications professionals, and that's a challenge for me being located where I am. So when, I, when I'm able to go to conferences like the CDC Health Conference or, or other conferences, I really enjoy getting to sit down and see how other people are applying these practices or, or really trying to branch out in new areas and then evaluate how they're working or not. So that's really critical. I'm also more than happy to talk to, email, or, or reach out to anybody who's interested. 
Um, I'm happy to share um, my contact information to do that. Um, thirdly, I think the more that we can share our work um, publicly, the better. Uh, we're trying right now to publish some of our findings in reports um, and, and perhaps journals to sort of share the process that we used, how we're adapting and adopting best practices so that other health communications professionals can see what we've done and perhaps can see some ways that they can do this uh, where they are. Well, thank you, Anne, so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today and learn more about what you're doing in the great state of Alaska. And we hope that anyone who'd love to inter uh, listen to more of our Healthier podcast will visit our website at chronicdisease.org. We appreciate your listenership, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I think the work that Anne is doing is really amazing and how she was able to take some of the stuff that she learned as far as smoking cessation and translate that into sugary drinks and things like that. It's a really great lesson on how we can use the knowledge that we have and, and carry it over into other things that, that maybe on the outside we wouldn't ordinarily think about. If you'd like to know more information or curious about the program that she's involved with, go to dhss.alaska.gov, or you could just Google search Play Every Day, and Anne's contact information is on that website, and there's just a lot of neat stuff for parents, for children, some challenges that your kids can, can take. It's pretty great. And, as always, for more health, yeah, you can go to chronicdisease.org. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Health Yeah. I hope you found it informative and entertaining like I did. On behalf of NACDD, thank you very much for listening.